Hi. It's Talks and Filiate Me. I am Julie Kearns, and this is, I'm pointing. Aaron Dillon Kearns. And we are so very bravely weathering Monday, April 20th, many weeks into lockdown for us. Who knew that sitting in the same apartment for several weeks would be such a challenge? Yeah. The magic of cabin fever. Yes. We have been talking today. About the Donner Party. <laughs> no, we've actually, you were making jokes previously about 420. Yeah, but I, what I was saying was we don't talk about 420 for the sake of general integrity, for the humor of our show, so we don't verge into internet meme idiocy. We were also talking about how you can't have fun on the internet anymore with websites made of random fun and artistic stuff. But that has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about today, so I don't know why you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, you, you said that was completely off subject, and you said we shouldn't talk about it. And so we're going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> no, we're not. We're going to stop right now. I have watched, in preparation for this show, about 30 hours of cinema at least. I know it's more. All silent films... And we're not going to be discussing those either. <laughs> they have no. It's a podcast where we watch a lot of stuff, but don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, but that shows my dedication. We also searched and found the meaning of life, but we're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> Instead, we are going to talk about Ben Herpes. I mean, Ben Hur. Oh, good. God. <laughs> Let, shout out to Dad Martin Kearns for that one. <laughs> Instead, the subject of today's show is Ben-Hur. Peas. Or should we just say the subject of today's show is Ben-Hur. I think we already said that. How did we get here from there? Oh, well, um, first of all, there How was... How did we get here? Well, first, the universe was this vast space of nothingness with all the matter just condensed into one ball. And then eventually it just got so condensed that it eventually went okay, I can't stay confined like this anymore. So it had a bit of cabin fever its own way. And so it burst open, and there you have the universe. Then some other stuff happened, and eventually um, there's, there were a bunch of highly evolved monkeys on the planet Earth who picked up a camera and were like, hey, what if we make the pictures move? And then happened Timothy Carey. And <laughs> the world... <laughs> I have to get there somehow. Because we're not going to be talking about Timothy Carey. We were going to talk about the world's greatest sinner after having interviewed uh, his son, Romeo Carey. And that was our last two episodes. But we decided to put that on hold for a couple of weeks and to instead talk about Ben-Hur. But that Please. was by way of Timothy Carey's The World's Greatest Sinner because we were thinking about the spectacle of it, about how he promised you know just everything everything well like you would have like the standard stuff on some of the posters like the most shocking film you'll ever see i remember before we even did the interview there was one specific thing where like a couple of years ago i found on one of like one of those newspaper websites before they started monetizing those things yeah the, before they started monetizing them, i found one article where it was about the world's greatest sinner where he rebranded the movie to be about jonestown where he described it as being a documentary about jonestown but I'm talking about the way that it was advertised when it first came out. Oh, yeah. Well, okay? the sensationalism was like for all the releases, but that's what I mean. One advertisement read, 
have you the guts to see this film? See the sinner stab the sacred host. See the man who calls himself God. See the biggest riot ever in America. See the biggest fraud in history. See the sinner make Hitler, Mussolini, Castro, and Khrushchev together look like sissies. 200 other theaters refused it. You'll hate it or you'll love it, but positively no refunds. Then another ad, once again, capitalized on the theaters refusing it. Why, why, why did 200 other theaters refuse it? And another ad read, the most shocking sequence ever seen in a motion picture anytime and anywhere. Religion and sin, a potpourri of passion and power that will nail you to your seat with shock. Spectacle. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so at the time we were talking to Romeo Carey, I was also reading a book on the Colosseum. And what was the Colosseum about? But spectacle. Killing people. And animals. Uh-huh. The spectacle that was the Colosseum demanded not only the real thing, but enactments that were as close to the real thing as possible. Theater was in decline when the Colosseum was built around 70 A.D. to 80 A.D. Not too long ago, you know? No. <laughs> A lot of grotesque things happened there. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. <laughs> I feel like, here I had, I was going to talk about the Colosseum, right? I yeah. was going to talk about just how, you know, you had thousands of, that died in the Colosseum over the years. The entertainment was just vulgar and, and like that's bloody from today. and nasty. And, uh, but the re okay, yes, exactly. I was thinking, <laughs> that's how I got to thinking about the Roman epics. From there, I immediately went to Ben-Hur because... Charlton Heston. <laughs> Four hours of Charlton Heston? That's like... Okay, I don't feel like I have really introduced this properly. Listen, the, the Colosseum just... with its gladiators and its lions and all the many animals that were killed there. even the even to Heston. <laughs> even to extinction of them. I was wondering, what kind of expectations, what kind of the theatrical moved over from that into 20th century epic entertainment, drawing people to the theaters with the promise of the biggest, the most grandiose, you've never seen the likes of this before, get in here, purchase your ticket, sit down in the seat with your popcorn and your drink for the next four hours. <laughs> And just enjoy being drenched in blood and religion and a little bit of sex. Actually, there wasn't too much. Like, Charlton Heston's Ben-Hur has, you know. <laughs> well, I, I don't think anyone would want to see four hours of Charlton Heston sex. That would be, frankly, just kind of grotesque. So, there have been four versions of Ben-Hur that have been done. Do we discuss the 2016 version, the latest version? No, I think the poster describes it all quite well. The poster has some kind of half-bearded, butch, WWE-looking guy, all yellow and brown like a Simpsons character, just 
facing somewhere just beyond the poster while screaming his head off, you know? Just the standard sort of, you know, modern day movie poster kind of thing where you just sort of look at it and you go, Oh yeah, it looks like uh, never two hours of my life that I'll never get back. Which begs the question, does the spectacle have any meaning anymore with CGI? Everything is a spectacle now, isn't it? I mean, the it's, popularity. It's, it's a spectacle overdose. <laughs> we have a spectacle overdose that has been going on since CGI has made it possible to plant characters. That's what the internet is for nowadays, because then you could get the real stuff of both ends. I don't understand what you mean by that. You could get the real stuff when it comes to, well, pornography, and you could get the real stuff when it comes to death. Reddit covers both of that. <laughs> So we're not going to discuss the 2016 CGI version of Ben-Hur because CGI really does make the spectacle meaningless. Well, that and just jacked up production budgets these days because just about every film has like steroid levels. Oh no, because these other ones had huge budgets. That was one of the drawing cards. The amount of money that went into these productions. Maybe it's like, come see this. The most money ever spent on a film has been poured into this film. Come sit down in the seat and and, and what? Ben-Hur 2016 is now like the many of how many films they put out where They either make it look like it's really rich or like, you know, it actually has a lot of money put into it. Because I would say that just about any big blockbuster, Avengers Endgame, Godzilla King of the Monsters, you know, all that had just about the same or even more like big production values as Ben-Hur 2016. As a matter of fact, I would not be surprised at all if Ben-Hur 2016 was like a bargain bin production in comparison with how Game of Thrones and stuff like that, just about everyone wants to make their own period piece at this point. Well, I actually didn't research the 2016 version at all, so I don't know about it, but like I was saying, my point is that CGI has rendered the idea of this spectacle pretty meaningless. The amount of money used to be a big drawing card when they were building these monstrous sets, whole towns, and all of that. Now you could just have your actors walk around a green void. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. As you can see, we will not be discussing the 2016 version. We will instead begin with talking about the 1907 version directed by Sidney Alcott. Now, to begin with things, film itself began as a spectacle and people were pretty easily impressed back then i mean back in the day you could just show them a horse galloping and they would be absolutely blown away by it well the first film actually was edward muybridge's galloping horse galloping horse what was it called i i actually i put up something on that today and it had a name it wasn't just the galloping horse oh it likely had like a whole sentence for a name like they did just about everything back then they would have like a whole description for the it title. was sally gardner at a gallop and oh that's shorter than i thought it'd be i thought it'd be like you know uh sally gardner galloping a horse at 2 30 on a saturday afternoon or whatever it, it was an 1878 a stop motion film yes but when it came actually to the early nickelodeons they found that sex and violence were what drew people to the little 
contraptions that I'm, little, I'm, I'm sitting here and I've got, I've got my hand, hand. I'm cranking the little Nickelodeon. And people can't see it. This is the level of effort we put into it. We even put in the visuals that people will never see. I have a Nickelodeon sitting right beside us. So I'm going out and got it. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, yeah, the Nickelodeon that we call the radiant heater. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, Nickelodeons back then weren't all that different from Vine if it's just sex and violence. <laughs> but when you come to think of it, people loved the galloping horse because you went from Edward Murray Bridge to what's the big thing about Ben-Hur? You got the horses. You got it's the horses. It's the chariot race. The horses galloping around the, you know, the hippodrome. From the Coliseum, my mind went to Ben-Hur. And my mind wasn't half wrong as the 1907 Ben-Hur is said to have been the first film based on the Roman Empire. And boy, what a start it was. <laughs> Let's get together and put on a play. So, oh, are you getting to the theatrical production already? No, no, no. I'm talking about this one, which is what it's like. Oh, I mean, well, you have the camera pointed it's at not the even scene. A play, though. It's 15 minutes of costumes milling so, around the stage. They had costumes. It was a $500 budget. Oh, and, my God. Yes, if you can imagine that. <laughs> all, all of it went into paying at least a couple of the actors and costumes. Well, the 1907 Ben-Hur was part of a sort of ongoing progression because first you had the Moybridge horse galloping and people were blown away by seeing a horse in motion. Then you have a round hay garden scene and with that you have a bunch of people on a garden and one of them walks around like an idiot. And people were just amazed by the fact that people are moving. Both of those films have some kind of morbid histories of death behind them, but we're not going to go into that today. After that, you have a bunch of other films. Thomas Edison did an adaption of Frankenstein. 1910. 1910. He did an adaption of Frankenstein. But you're leaping ahead from 1907 oh, shoot, to 1910. Right. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> oh, I got my time mixed up. In 1897, Edison recorded The Sneeze. In 1888 was filmed the Round Hay Garden scene, and that was believed to be the first real film video, whereas um, Mui Bridges, as I said, was a stop motion. It was a crank thing. It was especially like the same sort of thing you'd have like with those plates, or I remember seeing one where it was like an ancient Egyptian hieroglyph, where if you looked at it in a certain way, it would look like an animation. But wasn't that a different process? What, yeah, yeah, that, but it's effectively the same kind of idea of like the sequence. Yeah, because that was a little through. bit different process than yeah. he because he did Overall, two different. Ho- he yeah. did two different horse films in 1878. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sally Gardner was the second one that he did. Okay, so it was like the Terminator Two of horse films directed by Moybridge. It's the one that more people know. <laughs> Actually, that's a very short period of time to have passed, isn't it? A very short period of time to have passed between 1897 and your little Nickelodeon's The Sneeze mm-hmm. and 1907 Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. Ten years. Mm-hmm. So after Round Hay Garden scene, you have the train film, which is the first ever instance of a film which had like a really distinct frill to it because you have the train car heading to the camera. And supposedly that film made people jump up out of their seats, but that's largely Oh, you're talking just... about the great train robbery. You might No, have... no, no, no. The train film where it goes to the camera. Okay. Just the the one-shot the... movie. Oh, okay. So after that, people thought, okay, we have a train heading to the camera. How else can we thrill people? And then one person said, I know. We get a bunch of people 
put them in costumes, and put them in a tiny soundstage where they could run around like a bunch of confused cockroaches. And that brought us Ben-Hur 1907. <laughs> I've read they were actually on a beach. Oh, really? So it's one of the earliest beach party movies, Ben. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But that's all that they do. It's 15 minutes long, and you have these different caption cards that tell you you don't. A tragic accident. There's a tragic accident when the tile falls and hits gratis. Yeah. Which starts off the whole. The whole drama. But the thing is, is they don't even show that. First, the film opens up with all these people milling around in front of the painting of the building. And then. They have the tragic accident thing, and they're standing on top of this the, goofy looking the, sort of like McDonald's playpen type of mansion looking thing. No, it, what it looks like is exactly what it is. It's a panel of a painting of a building, and they're standing on a scaffolding behind it. Yeah. So that it looks exactly like what it is. Mm-hmm. And nothing happens. They just kind of stand there. And once again, they mill around. The tragic accidents, they put the tile card too They early. do a lot. Uh, and they <laughs> they throw their hands up a lot in the air. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing about it. So in but, the first scene, we couldn't tell who was who. But you had, well, I think it was Ben-Hur walking up to the crowd. And he does like this weird thing where he's raising his arms up in the air like a gospel preacher. And then everyone just starts copying him. And it turns into like an aerobics lesson or something. And then... You have the tragic accident, which is the fact that they put the tile card too early. Because the tragic accident scene is just them wandering around on top of a roof. And then they have the title card for the real tragic accident, which happens, which is when the tile falls down. And actually, they push a brick out of the painted Yeah. I'm surprised they went to that effort, really. Yeah, (laughs) they push a a brick out of the painted The painted backdrop. Except since they're standing on it behind it, it's not exactly a backdrop, is it? It's a painted facade. It's like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but for really boring people. And uh, <laughs> it hits it hits gratis. It says that Ben-Hur goes to the galleys only. It has Ben-Hur being dragged out of his home, right? Yeah. And But we don't have any galleys. And then, they couldn't afford it. And then he's rescued from the galleys by his having rescued Quintus Arius. Mm-hmm. Quintus Arias took him to the back lot of a studio where they shot the thing. <laughs> no, it took him to another part of the beach. And <laughs> it looks like the back lot of a building. And then you have the the chariot race, which actually it was firemen. Firemen, <laughs> firemen back then. They yes, that's what how they got from place to place. You know, before, by horse. By horse, they had a team of horses pulling. And now, my favorite thing about it was just before the scene with the horses. You have um, this scene, which is just, which is just supposed to be, you know, Ben Hur and Arius wandering around in ancient Rome, and it's one of these huge crowd shots again, where you have like all these people just wandering around, the actors just sort of meshing with each other, like this amalgamation of half discernible faces and limbs all over the place. It's almost a little bit Lovecraftian that way. But then partway through, this horse chariot just bursts into the scene from like the corner of a room. And it pulls back almost immediately afterward. The corner of what room? They're uh, on a beach. The, the corner of a shot. And so, one of the things about this movie is you can't quite tell what was supposed to happen and what was just like an accident on set they decided to keep in anyway. Because it's very haphazard that way. I mean, it ends with the chariot scene. 
And Maturian scene itself is already kind of confusing because you couldn't tell at first like the same writer was like looping or if it was actually different people. Well, actually, if I had cared enough to do it, yeah, it was obviously you had different cuts there, yeah, where it looked like it was indeed looping. It looked like you may have had three loops. Mm -hmm. And if I had cared enough, I could have gotten a screen grab from the beginning of each one and compared them, and I could tell you whether or not it was actually looping or whether it was three different cuts. But <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Who cares? No one remembers this version. <laughs> And, well, they shouldn't, except for the fact that it was an important film because it was your first example of a copyright problem. They didn't seek permission. The estate of the writer of the book, Ben-Hur, went after them for this, and their $500 film ended up costing them $25,000. Mm. You know, we need copyright, don't we? I know, but when you don't do copyright right, it hurts. It hurts. It's like this. When you want to use something yeah. that somebody else has done, you wish that copyright didn't exist. But then when you have done something, you really like things having a copyright. Well, that's what plagiarism is for, because then... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, well, see, that's the thing that puzzles me about uh, the 1907 Ben-Hur, and yet it doesn't. I mean, you just have people milling about. It has so little to do with, with the book Ben-Hur mm -hmm. other than this. One, a brick falls on somebody's head, and there's a chariot race. Yeah. Those are the two things. Those are the only two things that connect it. Well, never mind that. But, I mean, if you, if you had named it instead the race of... The race. Yeah, as in horse race. Mm -hmm. Or the tragic brick and horse race. <laughs> George got hit on the head and had a, a chariot race. Okay? Or you could name it George got hit on the head and... Rode a horse. And drunk firemen raced their teams of horses down the beach <laughs> while they were dressed up as Romans and Judeans. A uh, beach party, bricks and horses. <laughs> beach party, bricks and horses. There that's you it. go. I mean, that's... It's a forerunner. It really... Other, otherwise, it has it has nothing to do with Ben-Hur. And the, yet... The except captions. for the... Except for that name, a brick, and the horses. horses running. Anyway, they had these professional actors, and it wasn't necessary because the camera's distant enough that you can't really see them, and the way that people are just kind of running around and throwing their arms up in the air and gesticulating wildly, it's like a junior high production. Well, not even that, because the adults. actors don't aren't like you know trying to make themselves stick out or anything. They're literally just like a bunch of confused cockroaches just wandering around. It's more like if you put cockroach brains oh, in I human think, bodies. I think, the, I think the guy who played Masala and I think the guy who played Ben-Hur would be offended by this. Oh, I, I think they, let's not offend the people who are dead I for like they over probably like 50 years. I imagine they probably believed I was acting. Here's was, my stand-up performance as the man who flung his arms up in the air and then got mixed in with the other 500 people who were probably picked up off the streets. <laughs> theater actors did, at the beginning, consider it a kind of come down to act in film. 
Okay. Because I mean, not much was happening. It was all pantomime. I mean, the biggest stand-up moment you could probably have back then is like, you, you appear in the sick kitty where you hold the cat and it zooms in on the cat's face. It's just sort of like, there, there's my standout performance. I'm holding a cat, you know? The world is all Nickelodeon now because of it, the internet. It's all <laughs> Nickelodeon. Every single day, all over Twitter and Facebook, it's just one, it's Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon, yep. Nickelodeon. The actors were Herman Rutger, Rotger, Rutger, who played Masala, William S. Hart played Ben Hur, as opposed to William S. Burroughs, and he appeared in the Broadway play. Harry Temple Moray and Jean Gontier. That's a Moray. And I'm not even going to talk about who did the cinematography. They were uncredited anyway. They probably don't even deserve it. They they just stuck their camera there and then went off to get a beer. You know. That's actually what's kind of special about the horse race scene. You don't even see, like, the horses go down or anything. They just sort of stop going through. And I like to think of that meant that um, instead of, like, being knocked out or anything, the horse race drivers all just decided to go to Denny's or something like that. And Ben-Hur was, like, the only one who stuck around afterward. <laughs> Have we communicated just how boring that film was and how hard it was to sit through? It thin- was fun minutes. to make fun of. We oh, had a laugh But you that. have to admit that sitting through 15 minutes of people just running around was a bit of a chore. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it's not nearly as much of a chore as four hours of Charlton Heston. But we're not there yet, because we're going to move on from talking about the 1907 film to talking about the 1925 film. By, Which is actually good, by, surprisingly enough. Directed by Fred Niblo. Starring Ramon Navarro. But first we talk about the book, Ben-Hur. Right? Yes. Because there was this fascination with this book that everyone had. And it was a huge bestseller. So, of course, that gives you an instant audience, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The book Ben-Hur was written by a guy named General Lou Wallace. And he was a veteran of the Civil War, the Union side. He was serving as a governor of the New Mexico Territory at the time that the book was published. It became the best-selling novel in American history, eventually surpassing Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it remained the best-selling novel until Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind in 1936. Which could, uh, yes, exactly, which (laughs) should tell you something about the quality of this novel. I tried to read it. Often enough, with a film that I am analyzing, I will go ahead and I will read the book that it's based on. I could not do it with this book. I had to check a couple of things with it. I was able to do that. I skipped around in it, but there was no way I was going to read this book. And you were able to read through Dracula and Stephen King's The Shining. Yes, yes. (laughs) And that instantly lost us, everyone who likes Stephen King who's listening. Um, no, actually, there was there's some good stuff about Stephen King's The, Sh- the Shining, okay? Uh, I thought it was just too goofy uh, for its own good. Okay. Do we need to really go there? Okay. Okay, we're not going there. We are talking about Ben-Hur. Ben-Hurt. The competition between Ben-Hur and Gone with the Wind continues, because the 1959 movie Ben-Hur uh, was beat only by Gone with the Wind, as far as movie popularity for the time. And with the release of the 1959 version of Ben-Hur, 
the original book itself resurged in interest and it outsold Gone of the Wind after mm-hmm. Gone of the Wind outsold Ben-Hur upon its initial release. Right, yes. So, the 1880 book had its own gimmick as far as what initiated it. Why was it written? Right, and that's going to make people sit up and go, oh, this isn't just General Lou Wallace. This also involves somebody else who was extremely popular and everybody talked about and was a very famous orator, crisscrossing the country time and time again, giving talks. Elvis Presley? (laughs) We're talking Robert Ingersoll, a humanist, leading free thought person, agnostic, atheist, intellectual. He drew crowds wherever he went. Robert Greene Ingersoll was drawing secularists and non-secularists all across the country. He went around talking about things like, and I'm going to quote here, things that he said, because I think this is kind of important, how he said things as opposed to how General Lee Wallace said things. At least 150 millions of human beings have been sacrificed to establish what is called the Christian religion. I am opposed to the whole business. I want to get rid of the old religions, and I want no new ones in their place. Another quote, religion can never reform mankind because religion is slavery. Another quote, there are in nature neither rewards nor punishments. There are consequences. Another quote, I will not attack your doctrines nor your creeds if they accord liberty to me, if they hold thought to be dangerous, if they aver that doubt is a crime, then I attack them one and all because they enslave the minds of men. Another quote, the more a man knows, the more willing he is to learn. The less a man knows, the more positive he is that he knows everything. Those are some of the quotes from Robert Ingersoll. The last one's basically the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? He advocated for science and reason, the rights of women and African Americans. He promoted legalizing birth control, women's suffrage, equal pay for women. He opposed social Darwinism, the idea that some are naturally inferior and that poverty is rooted in that inferiority. He was anti-war. So all around a not-half-bad guy. Right. Very, very popular mm-hmm. free thought. He was the well-known 19th century progressive. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about this a little bit because this is the thing that people were actually coming to hear. They were coming to hear him talk about these things. In 1881, he wrote on the Christian religion, A profound change has taken place in the world of thought. The pews are trying to set themselves somewhat above the pulpit. The layman discusses theology with the minister and smiles. Christians excuse themselves for belonging to the church by denying a part of the creed. The idea is abroad that they who know the most of nature believe the least about theology. The sciences are regarded as infidels and facts are scoffers. Thousands of most excellent people avoid churches, and with few exceptions, only those attend prayer meetings who wish to be alone. The pulpit is losing because the people are growing. 
Of course, it is still claimed that we are a Christian people, indebted to something called Christianity for all the progress we have made. There is still a vast difference of opinion as to what Christianity really is, although many warring sects have been discussing that question with fire and sword through centuries of creed and crime. Every new sect has been denounced at its birth as illegitimate, as a something born out of orthodox wedlock and that should have been allowed to perish on the steps where it was found. So this is the kind of thing Robert Ingersoll was going around talking about selling how many tickets. I forget how many people he spoke before, but just tons and tons of people, okay? Mm -hmm. This was entertainment. You go buy a ticket. I mean, you didn't have motion pictures yet. You know, this is what you did. You'd go, you'd buy your ticket, and you'd sit and listen to someone speak. This is your great-grandfather's contrapoints. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of putting it. The thing is that General Lou Wallace, he had a story about how Ben-Hur was born of a discussion between himself and Robert Ingersoll. Now, Robert Ingersoll, that's a name that's going to draw people to Ben-Hur. What are they going to read about? What has this to do with Robert Ingersoll? What is the response to Robert Ingersoll's agnosticism and atheism? This is what Robert Lou Wallace wrote as a preface for The First Christmas, which was a book published that was just a chapter excerpted from Ben-Hur. It was dedicated to all the Sunday school scholars in the world. There was a great mass convention of Republicans at Indianapolis in 76. And keep in mind, back then, this is back when Republican was the progressive group while Democrats were V. Right. Because there's like that weird, freaky Friday personality switch partway through. Right. (laughs) I resolved to attend it and took a sleeper from Crawfordsville the evening before the meeting. Moving slowly down the aisle of the car, talking with some friends, I passed the stateroom. There was a knock on the door from the inside, and someone called my name. Upon answer, the door opened, and I saw Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll looking comfortable as might be considering the sultry weather. Was it you called me, Colonel? Yes, he said. Come in. I feel like talking. I leaned against the cheek of the door and said, well... If you will let me dictate the subject, I will come in. Certainly, that's exactly what I want. I took a seat by him and began, Is there a God? Quick as a flash, he replied, I don't know, do you? And then I, Is there a devil? And he, I don't know, do you? Is there a heaven? I don't know, do you? Is there a hell? I don't know, do you? Is there a hereafter? I don't know, do you? I finished saying, There, Colonel, you have the text. Now go. And he did. He was in prime mood, and beginning his ideas turned to speech, flowing like a heated river. His manner of putting things was marvelous, and as the wedding guest was held by the glittering eye of the ancient mariner, I sat spellbound, listening to a medley of argument, eloquence, wit, satire, audacity, irreverence, poetry, brilliant antithesis, and pungent excoriation of believers in God, Christ, and heaven, the like of which I had never heard. He surpassed himself, and that is saying a great deal. 
The speech was brought to an end by our arrival at the Indianapolis Central Station nearly two hours after its commencement. Upon alighting from the car, we separated, he to go to a hotel and I to my brother's, a long way up northeast of town. The streetcars were at my service, but I preferred to walk, for I was in a confusion of mind, not unlike daysman. To explain this, it is necessary now to confess that my attitude with respect to religion had been one of absolute indifference. I had heard it argued times innumerable, always without interest. So, too, I had read the sermons of great preachers, Bousset, Chalmers, Robert Hall, and Henry Ward Beecher, but always for the surpassing charm of their rhetoric. But how strange to lift me out of my indifference one would think only strong affirmations of things regarded the holiest would do. Yet here was I now moved as never before, and by what? The most outright denials of all human knowledge of God, Christ, heaven, and the hereafter, which figures so in the hope and faith of the believing everywhere. Was the colonel right? What had I on which to answer, yes or no? He had made me ashamed of my ignorance, and then, here is the unexpected of the affair. As I walked on in the cool darkness, I was aroused for the first time in my life to the importance of religion. To write all my reflections would require many pages. I passed them to say simply that I resolved to study the subject. It only remains to say that I did as resolved, with results. First, the book Ben-Hur, and second, a conviction amounting to absolute belief in God and the divinity of Christ. That is what General Lew Wallace wrote. Ingersoll was alive, and he was written, and he was asked about this in 1887, and he denied that it ever happened. In response to an inquiry made on this, he wrote back, My dear sir, I write on the back of your letter so as to avoid the trouble of repeating what you have said in order that I may deny it. There is not one word of truth in the reports contained in your letter, except this. I do not know whether General Wallace was ever an infidel or not. I was never well acquainted with him, do not remember ever to have had a conversation with him on the subject of religion, but all that your letter contains in reference to my having done anything in concert with General Wallace or by agreement is without the slightest foundation. So, who are we to believe? Do we believe General Lew Wallace, who says that the two shared a train compartment and that he could remember the exact words? Is there a God? Is there a devil? There's is, a there known a psychological, is there a hell? There's but, a known psychological phenomenon where when someone's lying, they mm -hmm. just put in way more detail mm -hmm. than you would ever have in anything. Mm -hmm. Like when someone's lying about something, they would go all the way to like, oh, and it was 2.30 p.m., and I had a tuna fish sandwich just before the incidents happened. And in the meanwhile, and somewhere out in uh, Bali, a turkey flew over a bridge or something to that effect. Like, just going into all these different details, just to make it seem like it happened, you know? It's a known thing. Like, if someone puts in all these details, it's likely a lie. What's interesting to me is that it was preached from the pulpits. People loved this book. It's sold, and it's sold, and it's sold. At the same time, one of the major tenets of Christianity is that not only do you have the crucifixion, not only does Christ die, 
he comes back from the dead. The book does not end that way. It never talks about his being raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be discussing the 1925 movie and the 1959 movie. In both of these, you have the crucifixion scene and no resurrection. It's confusing to discuss Ben-Hur as being this pro-Christian film in a way because it really ends up being almost more humanist in that the 1925 version ends up being kind of anti-war, peace, be at peace. Let's take a look at what was happening in 1925, the year of... The first Our adaption bill is worth Niblo anything. Ben-Hur. Right. Now, in 1894, The Truth Seeker, a free thought publication, had led a successful fight against the Christian National Reform Association, which had nearly obtained a constitutional amendment declaring the United States a formerly Christian nation. A site called the Center for Inquiry notes that at the turn of the century, quote, the death of agnostic orator Robert Greene Ingersoll in 1899 had left a huge hole at the movement's heart, and a public hysteria about atheism, anarchism, and communism that would overwhelm the nation after World War I was already gathering strength, end quote. Ingersoll's death pretty much killed the free thought movement for the period of time. What happened was going on in 1925. Also, you had the Scopes trial. John Thomas Scopes was said to have violated the Butler Act in Tennessee that had made it illegal to teach human evolution in state-funded schools. What was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy was highlighted in, with that trial. Scopes was found guilty. It wasn't until 1967 that Tennessee would repeal the Butler Act. I know, I always forget that Scopes lost. Really? Yeah, because evolution is just such an accepted, and it's taught, Mm -hmm. you know. So I I always kind of forget that he lost in Tennessee. In 1926, Sinclair Lewis would publish Elmer Gantry, which by satire opened up for question American fundamentalism, loosely basing the character of evangelist Sharon Falconer on Semple McPherson, a celebrity Pentecostal evangelist who made great use of radio and surpassed even Billy Sunday. Tens of thousands at a time would show up for McPherson's public faith healing demonstrations. The book, Elmer Gantry, was banned in Boston and broadly denounced. It was even suggested that Sinclair Lewis should be imprisoned Yet Elmer Gantry was the number one bestseller of 1927. So a lot of conflict there. There's a lot going on as far as religion. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, 1925, you've got this interest in such a way that Sinclair Lewis is motivated to write about faith healing. And yeah. what's really going on with that and try to expose it, people getting upset about this. And yet it became a best-selling novel. Yeah. And then you've got... The Scopes trial going on with teaching evolution and the backlash against that and the trial coming out in such a way where Scopes lost. And what I was trying to get there with all of that was just setting up 
the atmosphere for the time. Because mm-hmm. Ben-Hur is a difficult film to talk about. It was sold as a Christian film. You had advertising that said all Christians should go see these films. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they come off more, as, I mean, especially the 1925 film comes off more as humanist. Uh, and metaphorical in a way. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a peculiar thing to talk about. Yeah. That's the thing. The 1920 version is actually good. Which surprised both of us. Neither one of us had seen any of these Ben-Hurs before. Yeah. Which is why I decided, oh, well, let's go ahead and watch Ben-Hur. Which led to not just the 1959 version, but the 1925 version and the 1907 version. And we were kind of surprised. We suspected, because of Charlton Heston's chest, to hate the 1959 version. Which we did, pretty much. But the 1925 version was so good, and we hadn't expected that. Yes. How long is it? Two hours and like 20 minutes. It was, it was standard length now, but yeah, it, was it was probably... it was two hours and 22 minutes. I was the one who sat down to watch it first, and I realized a third of the way through, and I realized, oh my... This is so involving. This is written really well, filmed beautifully, edited beautifully. Good acting. Acting is just incredible. Ramon Navarro, you have such great sympathy for this character, the way that he plays him. You are so drawn in that time was just sweeping by. Mm -hmm. Two hours and 22 minutes was almost nothing. It was such a wonderful experience of a film. Mm -hmm. And then, so I had your dad sit down and watch it with me after watching around a third of it i stopped it and i was like well what do you think so far and he said volunteer that this is really speeding by you had no idea and you did the exact same thing you said on your own without my saying anything about it around a third of the way through you said oh my i can't believe what did you say 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's not a third of the way through at all. But Well, still, yeah, it felt like maybe like five yeah. or four. Uh-huh. It goes by so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a really good film. Yes. And I really liked Ramon Navarro. Yes. We'll get into that when we get more into the film, though. So, a few facts about the film first. Rudolph Valentino was originally considered for the role of Ben-Hur. That didn't happen, and we are so glad it didn't happen because Ramon Navarro is so good. It was produced by June Mathis, who actually was the person who is said to have discovered Rudolph Valentino. Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. You mean uh, Ramon Navarro? June Mathis. She was a very powerful woman in Hollywood. Okay, okay. You said that she she discovered them both. She discovered Rudolph Valentino and Ramon Navarro. Okay. Both. Yes, and it's unexpected back then to run into a woman who was incredibly powerful in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. She did the adaptation of the novel for the movie. She was a producer. She was a spiritualist and one of Hollywood's highest paid executives. The reason I note that she was a spiritualist is because some of the free thought movement in the late 19th century, spiritualism had come on very strong at that time. And you had free thoughters who were spiritualists. Some say, nay, no, you can't have an atheist agnostic who is a spiritualist. But things were a lot muddier than people think. The boundaries were not that set. And it's interesting to note that June Mathis, who was a producer, is somebody who was a spiritualist. 
she adapted the novel for the film. So we're looking a lot at her, what she was bringing to the screen. So it was a great film. It was a spectacle. It cost almost $4 million. It was the most expensive film to date. MGM's average cost for a film at that time was 158000 And keep in mind, this was for money of the time. This isn't adjusted to inflation or anything like right. that. It had a cast of between 125 and 150,000 people. It's a lot. And there's some fun little details about that that we'll oh, go we need, into later yeah. on. It was called the Supreme Motion Picture Masterpiece of All Time. Advertising stated, Ben-Hur is a picture that brings to your door the realms of beauty and magnificence never before conceived by man. And it went on to talk about unfolding before your eyes scenes, awe-inspiring scenes of grandeur and poignancy and breathtaking things, tremendous things. And it said, you will be enthralled from beginning to end. Your eyeballs will pop out of your skull and your dog will turn into a cat and the earth will spin upside down. See the great circus, the advertising said. The chariot race, the sea fight, the love romance, the gallery scenes. What did we have back with Timmy the Carey? Remember? Oh, yes. See the sinner stab the sacred host. See the man who calls himself God. See the biggest. So, you, you know, you have that legacy of... Carnival Barker. The spectacle. I expected a horrible film. And it was great. It was like if you had Buster Keaton acting in Metropolis. You, for some reason, see Buster Keaton in him. I do. I, don't. I kind of now, do. Buster Keaton, yes, was the intellectual comic acrobat absolutely fantastic. well i'm also just sort of feel like the sort of sympathetic role kind of thing I, I, and i understand as far as there's a certain sympathy afforded him yes i can see where you can make a comparison there with buster keaton also he had a kind of wide-eyed he had a kind of innocence to him that mm-hmm. you don't have with buster keaton ramon navarro was 26 when he played this role i think the way that it's staged is he comes off as very wide-eyed kind of innocent at mm-hmm. first he kind of keeps this throughout the film, even though he has reason for great revenge against Masala. It's handled very differently in this movie mm-hmm. than in 1959. Yeah. The way Ramon Navarro moves, that also has, he's so naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got the same kind of little stagey, silent film thing going on, but his is more a, a good amount of naturalism to it and spont- it feels spontaneous. What the thing is, it feels spontaneous. And it's really nice. And it's nice also in contrast to the guy who was playing opposite him as Masala, Francis Bushman, who was supposed to have been the great heartthrob of the time. He has the very stagey, silent film acting thing going on. And yet it works really well Mm -hmm. opposite Ramon Navarro's naturalism. And it, it pairs wonderfully. The story of Ben-Hur, as told in this film, is Masala has returned and Ben-Hur goes to meet him as a friend. Judea is under the heel of Rome. He realizes that his friend is not his friend anymore. He's a Roman. He's He's been red-pilled. He's a real Roman now. And he takes him to his home to meet his mom again and his sister and all that. 
and Masala is just, I'm better than you. I'm Roman. It's basically the equivalent of, like, you bring in, like, an old childhood friend, you realize he's been browsing 4chan for, like, the past five years. And he starts going on with his red pill rhetoric, and everyone's like, oh, no. He leaves. They have the procession through town where Gratis is coming through. Ben-Hur is up on the roof patio of their home with his sister. They're watching the procession. They're watching for Masala in it. Ben-Hur is still kind of proud of Masala, who was his childhood friend. It's like, look... Doesn't he look great? My buddy. It's my buddy. My and, buddy. And, I mean, and, he's kind a of a tile. jerk now, but still, hey. A tile drops and it hits Gratis and Masala comes up. And he knows that Ben-Hur is not guilty, but he goes ahead to make himself look good. He has him taken in along with his mother and sister. And his mother and sister are put in prison and he's made a galley slave. Which, by the way, they didn't have. They didn't have slaves rowing the Roman warships. It was a paid day but, job. But in, yeah, it was it was a paid job. But uh, in Ben-Hur, it became that. There's a battle, and Quintus Arius, who is the leader on the sh- of this fleet of Roman ships, he saves him, and because of that, he ends up being adopted by Quintus Arius, and goes to Rome, and he becomes a great charioteer there, and athlete. He's happy with Quintus Arius, but he is not happy because he must find out what happened to his sister and his mother. With Arius's blessing, he returns to Judea. He meets the sheik who has these wonderful horses, and the sheik finds out that he is a charioteer who's raced in the circus in Rome, and wants him to race for him. Ben-Hur says, no, I have to find my sister and my mother. But then he finds out that Masala is going to be in the race. So he decides to do the race. He wins. They get tons of money from this. And at the same time, he finds the slave. Uh, his, his family had a slave that was taking care of all the money. So a uh, Simonidas, he was the good slave. You have a good slave. There were other things going on in, 19, uh, in the 1920s about... What? Oh Lord! What? <laughs> no, no, just just for the levels of whatever everything's gonna be coming in with this, you know. Do we need to talk about what was happening with the Ku Klux Klan and all that in oh the 1920s in relation? When we talk about a slave, only he was the good slave. Then the whole idea of Ben Hur and the daughter of the slave fall in love, and oh, that man. problem of where she is owned by him, that power relationship. Do we need to? Oh uh, Lord, yes, I don't know. That, I think we should just keep this and like just our acknowledgement, just like oh my God, yes, this I, is like uh, this is an onion of subtext. They're just coming into play. Okay, so he finds him, and he finds out that the slave who has been living as a free man. This was pointed out at the very beginning of the film. He is grateful to the family of Ben-Hur that he has been allowed to present himself to the world as a free man. And his daughter doesn't even know he's a slave. She's shocked to find out. He has to reveal to her that they are slaves when Ben-Hur shows up. Then he tells Ben-Hur, I've been taking care of the money all this time. Because that's what he did. He took care of the family's money. He finds out he's got tons of money. He's filthy rich. He's like levels of Bill Gates rich. So after the chariot race, the whole Messiah plot comes in where he 
is interested in the Messiah. He wants, he's going to raise an army for the Messiah. There's the road to Calvary that happens, and he races to the road to Calvary to say, I've got an army. I've built an army. They're on their way. The hand of Christ passes over him, and it's anti-war Christ. And he goes, oh, anti-war. And he, his face changes, and he has forgiveness now. Then there is the crucifixion, and he has found his mother and sister, who had been kept in prison all these years, and they were lepers. And there's this wonderful scene where the daughter of the slave, Esther, Esther, Esther. You know, that's a kind of hard name. Esther. 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 You know, I don't know any Esthers. I don't know any Ben-Hurs either. So it's a wonderful scene where Esther goes and gets Ben-Hur's mother and sister from the leper colony in what is like the underworld. The Divine Inferno. In Italy, you technically had the one of the earlier big epic movies, which was a version of Dante's Inferno, and that had a scene set in Purgatory, which is a lot like the Leper Colony sequence. So instead of a literal raising from the dead, you, st- you start getting this impression from the film of these lepers who are raised from the dead. Although and in Masson version, you do have, with when the Christ healing, is going through, he does raise a baby from the dead. The main thing is forgiveness. Mm-hmm forgiveness and being at peace and there's the crucifixion at the end of the film ben-hur assures everyone that christ is still alive in their hearts he's not dead he's alive in their hearts oh yeah christ uh he healed the the mother and sister oh right he healed them of their leprosy which fits in with the whole being healed of simple revenge except that one reason i brought up at the beginning of all this the context of the times, 1925, Elmer Gantry, the faith healing, is that you did have this faith healing culture going on. Where did that fit in with all of this? Spiritualists, you had a certain amount of belief there in faith healing, but not in context of Christ or Christianity. You had a perception of Christ if he lived as being a great teacher. The whole son of God thing where everybody had Godhood within them, where it was not a literal thing. So I think that's partly what you're getting from June Mathis's spiritualist contribution to the script. I could be wrong about that. But you can see where even though it was taught from the pulpit as being this very Christian film, it could be accepted by others as just a humanist film. You and I, we're not Christian, and in that way, it was so absent of theology that it was a very easy film to watch. Yeah. It was not something that makes you kind of itch and go, ah. Like the faith healing thing, bit weird, especially right now of COVID-19, where you have, like, some certain people who are like, oh, if you do this, if you do this certain religious thing, you will be cured of all disease, and, you know, you you have that going on, so... Mm -hmm. That makes it a little bit awkward, but outside of that, the religious content in the film does feel more conceptual or metaphorical than you would with a film like, this is the worst possible example, but if Footman tell you what will horses do, those crazy 60s religious propaganda films. Now, I have to say that at the very beginning, when I first started watching it, you start off with the journey 
to Bethlehem, where Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, and the Messiah is born, and you have the three wise wise men appearing. What you're beginning to establish there is that Ben-Hur is actually a counterpart to Christ. You have Christ, who is a spiritual leader, where you have Ben-Hur, who is rich, and he himself is more like the idea of the king. He's raising these armies. He is the material, the physical counterpart. And even Esther is kind of compared with Mary, because both have dove scenes that link them together. When we first see Mary, we see doves fly around her, and then we have a beautiful scene at the beginning where Ben-Hur sees Esther and doesn't know who she is. He has not met her father, and he has no idea who she is, and she's just gotten a dove, and it gets away from her. And this marvelous scene of him chasing the dove through the marketplace and under the feet of people, and you get this real feeling of his eagerness of the youth. It establishes the romance beautifully. There's one other subplot, and this is very important because we've got changes that happened with the 1959 film. In this version, Masala has a girlfriend, Iris. 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 He knows that he's going to be racing against this unknown Judean. And he doesn't know who he is, and so he, but he's heard that he's supposed to be great. So he sends Iris to find out who he is. And she is a trip. She's played by Carmel Myers. And she looks like an outfit that Susie from Susie and the Banshees would wear. And she's magnificent. She's just wonderful. And he kind of ignores her. Ben-Hur has nothing to do with her. I mean, after all, it's not even that he's so much interested in Esther. His whole purpose throughout the film is trying to find his mother and sister again. They established this intimacy early on where he has to find his family again and at the same time get this vengeance against Masala. And she's trying to entice him he's not interested and then she kind of teases him about that that he's not going to be very good at the race if he shows so little interest in her kind of questioning his virility you can tell that she's used some kind of potion in a mug where the smoke of it whiffs over him and then suddenly he is interested in her but then uh, never mind I mean we're getting away from things here but anyway he ends up not telling her anything but Masala finds out who he is anyway and Iris was actually a, a major character in the book that's a subplot that's important because it's later dropped in the 1959 version and it's interesting the reason that it's dropped let's get back to the dove scene you've got these crowds the way that crowds are handled in this film are different from later epics. In later epics, it's kind of like they're picture books and people are just kind of moved around and just set down and they are mechanical. They're almost like puppets or like a child taking dolls and setting them down. And even if they're moving around, they're not real people. And that's something that this film The crowds are alive. And it's not just that they start off the film with several different things that happen in the crowd, focusing in on the crowds, which makes it a kind of a very people film uh, where it shows the commoner, it shows the merchant, it has a woman putting on makeup, it has a confrontation with the Romans, it has, oh, the most incredible scene, this family 
and they're walking along and the, and the and they stop and the father puts his hand down and you can tell they're looking they've lost one of the children and then you have this wonderful kid coming along and he's got a dog on a leash and he's what like two years of age and it's just beautiful you get personality and it's like that with every single crowd scene there's different stuff going on all the time so the crowd they're not dolls we mentioned that according to one documentary they would actually do this thing where the crowds they would form like their own little social circles on the set yes they permitted that they were talking about there was a documentary talking about one director not this director who would who worked really well with crowds but this director i think worked great with crowds and they took advantage when they were doing the slaves in the galleys scene of the warring ships the roman ships fighting the pirate ships they took advantage actually of problems in italy at least from what i've read where you had fascists and anti-fascists and they used this so that they had them on the warring sides dividing them up to give an air of authenticity (laughs) so it was an actual fight they basically set up an actual battle between fascists and anti-fascists and just put it on film that's what i've read now did that really happen i don't know but that's what i've read it seems like you could have had somebody going you know no let's put that person over here and that person over here now the other thing is tying back into the whole coliseum thing people died on the set yes they did later in the chariot scene you had a person die. The actor who played Masala, he saw it happen. He talked about it. The guy racing behind him, he hit something. He said he saw him fly 30 feet in the air and dead. But more people died than that, perhaps, because for the ships at sea, you know, the, the whole battle sea battle thing, Italian actors showed up who said they could swim. They couldn't swim, as it turned out. And the stories were that it was possible that people had drowned. But that's as far as it goes. There are a couple little stories about that, but there's nothing firm about whether anybody actually drowned. Like, it's a few steps above the hanging munchkin in The Wizard of Oz. Like, you know, that whole thing where supposedly, if you look in the background well in the scenes, you could actually see, like, the body But there's of a- not. That it's a, it. That's there, why I said it's a few steps above that. Yeah, that is, that is totally literally like bogus. whenever you look at any of the remasters, it's obviously a bird. But people would always be like, "Oh, it's a Munchkin who hanged himself on the set," even though it's most likely a matte painting with a bird in front of it. <laughs> so the thing is, is that did this happen? As far as we know, that one person died. Person playing a charioteer. As far as the guys on the boat, you've got film of them, you know, diving into the water. Did any of them die? I don't know. I can't help but when you were talking about the chariot scene, when you were talking about the chariot scene, and you mentioned the guy flying 30 feet up in the air, it just reminded me of that one crash test dummy video we saw where the dummy went so high up in the air, but it was off camera for like five seconds mm. before plunging face first into the ground yeah you can get an idea of, of what it's like to fly 30 feet into the air and and hit the ground from that what's interesting to me is that one of the huge drawing cards to this film is the sea battle because we're talking about the spectacle again and one of the huge 
entertainment spectacles of around the time that the Colosseum was built and all that, they staged sea battles. They built places where they had fake sea battles and they were so brutal, some said that they were even more brutal than the gladiatorial battles because the gladiatorial battle, you could have a loser who the crowd would say, if they were still alive, the crowd would say, oh, let him live instead of putting him to death. Spare him! People died. They were said to be really bloody, nasty, horrible, staged, purely theatrical for the crowd's entertainment sea battles. Some people say it wasn't the Colosseum that was used first where you could fill it up like this big pool at the bottom because for one thing it had underneath a labyrinth of cells and where you kept animals for the big entertainment. And temporary theaters, they built these spectacular temporary theaters filling in these pools with water for these sea battles. It's funny how that endures, where people were so fascinated in Roman times, they would go for the sea battle. And what happens with Ben-Hur? Go see the warring ships on the sea in both the 25 and 59 version. It's such a big thing. Well, the 25 one specifically, the best background characters easily come in that bit with the pirates who are just insane. They are crazy. They're probably some of my favorite background characters who appear in the whole film. I wonder who are the fascists and who are the anti-fascists. Oh, man, I don't know. Do you think it... I don't know, because we're in... Uh, do you think you know, the Romans were played by the fascists and the anti-fascists were played by the pirates? That would seem fitting, like anarchists yeah. versus Nazis. That would just seem like, you know... I have no clue. I know you've got other things you want to talk about this film. What else? Oh, shoot, let me think. Uh... Should we talk about the chariot scene? Just how beautifully this is filmed. And it is so imaginative. The sea battle, that's, that's pretty good. But you get this sense of this claustrophobia and where they're all closed in there and boats ramming them. And you it's... have a guy who's tied up to the front of a pirate ship. Oh, goodness, don't go there. Oh, that, that was just... That was but that you, was like did, a peak of the pirates and Sandy, where it's just like the pirates are like, "Well, take you back to Rome our own way," and they just tie this Roman soldier who they held captive to the front of their ship and slam it right through the side of the boat. Yeah, so he's decapitated. You've got your share of blood. Going oh, I wasn't on thinking this. the gore. I was just right. sort of thinking like the insanity of the whole idea. But you do. You've got your share of blood and stabbings and this and that with the war. Yeah. So you've got the spectacle of the battle, and then you've got the spectacle of the chariot, which is actually beautiful. The chariot race, where it's filmed, is just amazing. The set is incredible. The race is really alive, as opposed to the 1959 one, which, once again feels like puppets. The 1925 one is this rampant, chaotic energy. And the actors were riding their own horses, too. Well, they were in 1959, yeah, too. They were driving their own horses. I mean, for both of them, they were... Well, in the 20s when you felt it more. Yeah, for the 20s when you really felt it. You know that this would have been innovative for the time. The camera is under the ground, where the, the horses run over the camera. And That's you had the, the camera attached to the carriage in several scenes also. And it was just beautifully done. And the way the back and forth between like the two characters also, between Masala and Ben-Hur during the race, 
Masala lives at the end of this one. Yeah, he loses. And he's shown at the end, he's got blood on his face, but he's still alive. Beautiful, beautiful scene. Well worth all the accolades that it has been given over the years. And this is coming from people who generally don't care for action, action stuff exactly. at all. Exactly. But once again, you know why that's going to be? Hmm. It's because you had such a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Ramon Navarro, you already care about the guy. It's not just action. It's actually between these two men, Masala and Ben-Hur. And you feel such sympathy for Ben-Hur. Such antipathy for Masala. He is your total love-to-hate-him villain. He wears this goofy-looking Elmer Fudd hat with, like, the wings on it. Like, he looks like... No, you know what that is. That's a Mercury helmet. The wings of Mercury. He's supposed to be fleet of foot. He's supposed to fly through the air. Oh, I'm a dummy. I forgot about that. Yes, Elmer Fudd. (laughs) Okay. I'm just thinking, like, in regards to, like, jerk characters from film. Once again, you keep talking about him as coming off throughout as just a simple jerk. When it's... That's not the case. He's... He is... Your standard love to hate this villain. That's what I mean. Like, I use jerk in like a more kind of way where it's like whoever that actor was who would like be opposite of Charlie Chaplin in some of his films, who was like the big, cranky looking guy who would always have like the makeup on where he looks like he has like shadows around his eyes that go like this, like raccoon yeah, eyes. Uh-huh. He always like play like the angry butler or something yeah, like that. Uh-huh. He's like that. And it's interesting to me that he was considered such a heartthrob for the time. Going on, I did want to say something about the horror of what happened to Ramon Navarro. So Ramon Navarro was gay, and uh, in the film, the slave has been sent to Antioch, and he has all the money. Ben-Hur doesn't know anything. He's a a kid. Ramon Navarro was 26 when he played Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur in the book is actually 17, and Masala is 19 when all of this starts out. Ben-Hur is not handling the finances, right? The slave is handling them, and he's handling them way off in Antioch. The Romans, when they arrest him, try to get the family's money, and they torture him for it, asking, where's the money? And he can't tell them. He doesn't know anything about the money. He doesn't know where it is. So Ramon Navarro was gay, had to be a closeted gay because of Hollywood and the the era he was who who was he involved with i told you who he was involved he was with. Uh, that experimental composer i'll try to find the name again harry parch harry parch i was thinking like he was involved with harry parch and then he uh, uh when he became famous he had to drop that relationship he died a horrible death he would occasionally have sex workers over apparently one of these sex workers told brothers paul and tom ferguson how to get in touch with him. They got in contact with him. They went over. They thought he had money hidden in his home. He lived in this amazing home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, this beautiful Mayan-inspired place. They thought he had money hidden there, and they tortured him for several hours. There was no money hidden there, so they walked off instead after killing him with $20 from his pocket. And it's really kind of terrible because you had Ramon Navarro playing this character who's tortured for his money and can't tell them where it is. And then you had how he died. Moving on. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah, that's sad. I don't want to stay there. I don't want to stay there. That's sad. That's so sad. 
After that, let's talk about how the director was caught in a car accident. Just kidding. <laughs> no, that's just so sad. Now we're going to talk about the play, because we've talked about the spectacle of the chariot scene and the spectacle of the sea battle. There was a play before this, and they knew Ben-Hur as a movie was going to be a tremendous success because the play did fantastically well. And once again, it was pure spectacle. A poster for it stated, From galley slave to the greatest of all Roman athletes is the dashing, daring career of Ben-Hur. And another poster shows the machinery that went into creating the race effect in the play of Ben-Hur because it had an actual chariot race, if you can believe that, which is just amazing that it would do this. So what they did was, you have horses, but then you put them on top of a treadmill. (laughs) The advertising went on about how you had stupendous international spectacular production, the pinnacle of 20th century stagecraft, the dramatic marvel of the century, Eight thoroughbred racers driven in three quadruple teams compete in the thrilling chariot race in the Antioch Arena. They ran on treadmills with a moving cyclorama background. Effectively, like, if, uh, you know how in the Flintstones, like, uh, Decon Animation, they would have a looping background? They were a live-action Flintstones cartoon. The London production was even more spectacular. Wikipedia says that it had four chariots and their teams galloping toward the audience on treadmills, which drove the movement of the cyclorama behind them, fans blowing up clouds of dust. Four chariots. The thing I'm wondering is, with the race and the story, the horse chariots start going down one after another until it's eventually weighed out to being just Ben-Hur and Masala. I think the first chariot went out on its own. The driver just messed up and he went face first on the floor. After that, Masala started messing around with the next chariot just to sort of like flex his, you know, I'm, I'm Masala, you know. But eventually it's just Ben-Hur and Masala and he tries to pull the same thing. What I'm wondering is how on earth they did that with the chariots in the feeder. This was tremendously profitable. They sold 25,000 tickets a week. How is that possible? It ran for 18 non-consecutive years on Broadway. When it it closed, it had been seen by 20 million people. People love this play. If you can call it a, a play, a spectacle, they would have had script, whereas silent film had no script. So people went from watching the theater production with script to seeing the silent film, which had no script. That you mean the 1907 one? No, 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 no. No, this round, this, the theater production... It wasn't even by script, because of course the 1925 version would have a script, but... No, no, 1925 version, people weren't talking. No, I'm talking, no, I'm talking about dialogue. Oh, now I get what, okay, now I get what you mean. This thing ran and ran, and then it closed in 1920, and so you've got people who would have seen the theatrical production, and they had dialogue. Imagine flubbing a line while riding your horse. And then they go and they see... The silent film. So that's a difference. I wanted to say something about the melodramas. That excited audience with the great risk concerned because you were made to feel 
What could possibly happen on stage? What if somebody gets hurt? That was part of the excitement. It was like the circus. What if somebody gets hurt? And there was somebody else, a guy by the name of Joseph Arthur. He was a hack who was able to produce what the audience wanted that way, and he did so spectacularly. The audience liked men fighting over a woman, and they liked big-time weaponry threatening the hero on stage live. It had to look like the hero might really be endangered. What happened in a play that he did called Blue Jeans was they had a real buzzsaw on stage. Oh, with, no. Yes. They had a real buzzsaw on stage. With you the sure guy. this isn't a grand guinol or anything like that? And with a guy laid out on the whatever you... Dudley do-right gone wrong. With a guy, well, no, it had a real buzzsaw, a guy laid out on the whatever... Whatever it is, the thing that you pull the wood down on. He's laid out on it, and he's, you know, the saw is going to cut him right through, but then his girlfriend comes out and grabs him off in the nick of time. Things like this, they did it in a really dramatic way where the audience had no idea how it was done, where it looked like the actor was in real danger. You see, at that point... With that buzzsaw gag, that is literally just... Same, same thing with the second league. With the Italian horror films where you would have, like, the extremely realistic gore that they would have. I, I was just watching earlier, there's a film called Absurd, which had something exactly like that, where it was someone who was, like, being pulled down this buzzsaw thing. But the only difference is, even then, you know, people wouldn't actually be in danger. Like, the buzzsaw was probably made out of, like, cardboard or something, you know? The blade was. Obviously, like, during the scenes where he's brought closer to it, the buzzsaw is clearly off, you know? I, I don't know how this was done, but I can say that the the safety net that was provided was one that one didn't have in the circus when you had acrobats entertaining without safety nets and could, have, and could be badly hurt. Yeah. I mean, nobody was ever hurt in blue jeans. Mm-hmm. And and you're going you're going there relying on that you're going there relying to see it relying on the fact that no one's been hurt. Mm -hmm. The only reason I know about this is because. Um, now what was that you said? No one's been hurt. No one. <sighs> <laughs> is that Stanley Kubrick included in Fear and Desire posters from two of Joseph Arthur's films, Blue Jeans, and The Cherry Pickers, and so I had studied up on those. I had studied up on Arthur's films and. That's how I know about this. Now we shall talk about the 1959 Ben-Hur because they decided... Oh, boy. They decided, mm, there was a silent version. Now let's do Charlton Heston in... Now the first thing about the 1959 version is the director of the 1959 version was involved with the 25 version. He directed the scenes that were shot in early Technicolor. So... Ben-Hur 1925 had both black and white and early Technicolor. Like, think uh, the original Femme of the Opera that had the Technicolor sequences thrown in there. It was like that. This guy who filmed the Technicolor scenes, which were really well done, where you would have these scenes that recreated stuff like The Last Supper visually. The one that scene that I really liked with the in color was when uh, Ben-Hur was riding in, in Rome victorious and had the rose petals being thrown at him. Mm -hmm. He was preceded by naked girls. You can hardly tell that they're naked. Yeah. Because, well, you know, bare-breasted girls. Yeah. Uh, but it, this was a pre-code film. Yeah. And so you had, you had bits of nudity here and there, but it's not anything that stands out, just like you can't really tell this. So the guy who directed these color sequences, he was approached 
to direct a remake of Ben-Hur. And he originally turned it down because he said... This, William Wyler. Yeah, William Wyler. He turned down the idea at first saying that the script was a complete hack job. But his interest peaked when he heard about just how much could be spent on the remake. And so, going to the screenplay... <laughs> Can I talk about my notes first? Something the, else about him? Sure. Okay, talk well, about this. Uh, it, I wanted to talk a minute about how it was produced by Sam Zimbalist. And he did, in 1951, another Roman epic called Quo Vadis. It was about the persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero. It had Christians being eaten by lions and shades of Ben-Hur. It had its own chariot race scene with charioteers whipping one another. Time magazine said it was the most genuinely colossal movie you are likely to see the rest of your lives, which begged another even more extravagant film to follow, Ben-Hur. It was touted as having 110 speaking parts and an unprecedented cast of 30,000, which was far precedented by Ben-Hur. 1925, which had in between 120 and 150,000 people, they said. Thousands of people appearing in a single scene that was billed as, it's an experience that cannot be compared with anything you've ever known before. You'll see the Battle of the Giants, the spectacle of Nero's circus, the burning of Rome. I did not watch that film. I glanced at it, and it seemed to look better than Ben-Hur, actually, which was weird. Plus, it had Peter Ustinov playing Nero. That's going to be good. The public loved the film, and it was the highest-grossing film of 1951, but reviewers were tepid. They praised it for its cinematic brilliance and opulence. They said it was bland and that it lacked taste. Robert Surtees was the director of photography, and he was cinematographer for Ben-Hur as well. But he also did Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show and Mike Nichols' The Graduate. The guy was good, excellent cinematographer, but Ben-Hur is just, yeah. <laughs> so, Can I say this first about, about William Wyler? Ben-Hur is a, is a terrible film, but he also did the Best Years of Our Lives, which is a really good film about dealing with life after World War II and veterans having difficulty adjusting and finding a place in society. He did, in 1949, The Heiress, starring Olivia de Havilland. That's a great film based on Henry James' novel, Washington Square. She's kind of like the poor little rich girl who falls in love with Montgomery Clift who proves to be only after her for her money. He also did Roman Holiday. Go on. What were you going to say? So in regards to the screenplay that was uh, described as basically being hacked here, it was written by Gore Vidal. Now... Uh, it was partly written by Gore Vidal. There were whatever. many writers on this well, thing. Well, either way, some people are going to be laughing a bit on realizing this because Gore Vidal also wrote the essentially rejected screenplay for Caligula, which was written initially by Vidal, but then just sort of completely remodeled by Tinto Brass. There was a confrontation going on between Vidal and Tinto Brass. Two didn't really get along that well, but when Tinto Brass was eventually asked about Vidal's conflict against him, 
What he said was, if I truly hate Vidal, I would publish his original screenplay as is. Which... (laughs) I think we should probably go ahead first and talk about how it had a budget of $15 million. Not only did it have a budget of $15 million, $15 million worth of marketing money was spent on this film. And boy did they market. I, I heard you talking about like some of the merchandise they would do for it. You were talking about some of the items, and I joked about Ben-Hur toothpaste, but that was topped by what you mentioned about how there was Ben-Hur and Ben-Him bath towels. Yes. We never looked to see if those were on eBay. I think I may do that right now while you're um going off on some of the other stuff. I'm going to look up right now to see if I could find Ben-Hur and Ben-Him bath towels. The, the marketing also included, they were really interested in the teen audience, directing at youth. So teens were surveyed for their interest. They made up a study guide for use in high schools and distributed it. $20 million worth of Ben-Hur candy was sold, according to Wikipedia. They sold children's tricycle chariots, clothing, perfume, and yes, Ben-Hur and Ben his or him towels. I I can't find it. Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised there should be a... Tri- I'm looking right now, There needs now, to be a tricycle out there somewhere. Oh, let me look up Ben-Hur tricycle. I'm looking up Ben-Hur on eBay, trying to find a tricycle, and I get Ben-Hur trailer. Who would buy a movie trailer on eBay? I don't know. Unless it's like a full-on trailer park trailer. And if you're selling bad on eBay, I would be amazed that, first of all, there's a Ben-Hur themed trailer park trailer, and that... B, they would actually sell trailer park trailers on eBay, of all places. So Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston's chest, was released in November 1959, a little before Thanksgiving, so it was going to catch the holiday crowd. If critics were critical of Quo Vadis, they loved Ben-Hur, and the audience loved Ben-Hur. It racked up 11 Academy Awards, including... Best Picture, Best Director, Best Leading Actor, Best Supporting Role Actor, Best Cinematography. Room at the Top, starring Lawrence Harvey and Simone Signoret, instead got the award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And some said if the writing credits hadn't been contested in Ben-Hur, it would have gotten the award. Let's give a picture as far as what was going on in 1959. Here are some other films that came out in 1959, and yet Ben-Hur swept I mean, it walked off with 11 Academy Awards. North by Northwest, it didn't get any awards. Truffaut's The 400 Blows, Marcel Camus' Black Orpheus, Elaine Renee's Hiroshima Mon Amour, Robert Bresson's The Pickpocket, John Cassavetti's Shadows, Plan 9 from Outer Space, The Shaggy Dog, <laughs> Pillow Talk, The World, The Flesh, and the Devil. Anyway, you get an idea of the movies that were coming out that year. You also had the epic Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur was essentially the avatar of its time in that... It blew up, and it's generic as hell. The advertising promised every spectacle of excitement and splendor. Nope. Stirring battle at sea, a fleet in flames, the tortured trek to cavalry. Thrill to the love of a prince for a slave in defiance of an empire. There's the slavery thing again. Yep. Mm -hmm. He released her, though. At the beginning of the film, he releases her. He, He meets her, and he's creepy. He's... Really creepy. You, you said that he had serial killer eyes. Charlton Heston, Ben-Hur. He goes from Ken doll, like stiff, emotionless Ken doll, to psycho. 
with the eyes. He has like the most intense serial killer glare I've ever seen. That is what he is. He's a he Ken doll. He is a Ken doll. He He's is a Ken a doll, Ken doll. That, that, can, that can like just be creepy. Like they should have waited on casting in Psycho because then if they casted Charlton Heston. If they cast. If they cast Charlton Heston as the killer in Psycho. Oh, listen to me. Yes, we are mother and son. He said casted, and I corrected him and said cast. Sorry. Go on. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. But if they cast Charlton Heston in Psycho, mm -hmm. that film would be infinitely more disturbing because then you would have Psycho starring a Ken doll that has the eyes of Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> that's an interesting comparison to make because that's exactly what he's like. He was uh, Charlton Heston is like a Ken doll. He, a Ken doll with like he, five bodies in its basement. Now, what, now what's <laughs> weird is Ramon Navarro had such a sympathetic presence. And generally wholesome kind of... doesn't have any of that. Charlton Heston was also 36 when he played this role as opposed to Ramon Navarro who was around 26. In the book, he's 17. It does not work with Charlton Heston, 36 years of age, digging into this film and digging into Charlton Heston. I came across where he had played at the very beginning of his film career. Oh, by the way, he was a male model for art students while he was starting off in acting. And so I came across another film that he did, and it kind of shows that he was a male model. Uh, it was 1950 television ad adaptation of Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Everybody else is fully dressed, and here comes Charlton Heston, and he's dressed in a loincloth. I mean, they knew. Even then, it was like Charlton Heston. Kendall. This is the guy with the body. He was playing Mark Antony. Immediately, he was established as the one with the body. I have not watched the film. I'm going to return to watch it because I had already, in preparation for this, watched way too many films. This is interesting. It's got quirky shots. It feels like cinema verite. No music. Absolutely ferocious close-ups. They're amazing, these close-ups. The director was David Bradley, who only did a very few films. His last two being a sci-fi, 12 to the Moon, which I haven't seen, and they saved Hitler's brain. Oh, no! Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That's like the version where they took another movie and put weird stuff in it. And it's like, what happened there? You've got something which, like, It's another Twonky. No, but, um, um, yeah, it's another Twonky. Admittedly, I have not watched this whole movie, but it looks like a seriously good adaptation it's interesting it's not and we're not talking epic it looks very high contrast just amazing well it's a lot like how there's two cases just like that vampire circus uh the guy who directed that he later on went on to direct the 1980s worst witch film and do you remember that scene tim curry doing a david bowie impression singing a song about halloween mm. while in a vampire co costume that's from that film. There's a guy who was sort of like a personal protege to Fossbinder. He acted in Love is Colderman Death, and he essentially directed several Fossbinder films that Fossbinder didn't have the time to direct. Uh, one of them being uh, this film called Terminus of the Wolves. This guy, pretty much after Fossbinder died, he kind of went bonkers. <laughs> and he did several films that ended up being on the IMDb Bottom 100. 
when you look at his IMDb page, it's pretty much a whole roasting of his career. There's like this little thing for like director traits, and all of them are just these things like out of focus shots, confusing plot setups, bizarre levels of patriotism. We have not yet talked about some of the things that made the 1959 film different from the 1925 film. We've already mentioned Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston can only make it so bad. It was just a bad film, and Charlton Heston was horrible. There were so many things that were wrong with it. <coughs> Four hours. <laughs> um, there were a couple of things that were right with it, as far as a 59 film goes. That, I'll get to that in a second. We both laughed like crazy over the Close Encounters UFO. Oh, what that was was, so, during the opening, it's the same sort of setup, you have... Mary and Joseph. They go out, instead of going to a barn this time around, they go to a cave. But what happens is... it's it's, You know what the shots are all like? hmm. They're all like Christmas card shots. Yes, they are. It's like, here, buy a set of Christmas cards from Ben-Hur. Your Ben-Hur Christmas cards, 1959. (laughs) They made them in advance. You you can have the Star of Bethlehem. You can have the... The Three Wise Men. The Three Wise Men, all of that. So, what you have is you have where Mary and Joseph... They go out to a cave, but then you have this shot of a field at night, and there's a star that's moving around just kind of strangely. We're, oh, UFO! But then <laughs> the star gets larger and larger, and eventually it moves to just above where the cave is, and this perfect glow of light just comes down, and it looks exactly like the stereotypical alien abduction. It's like beam this big, this yeah, beam of yeah, light. Uh-huh. It's like. You don't really have Christ being born. Christ is beamed down by space god. And I'm assuming at that point that God went back to outer space where he had like some kind of 2001 Stargate sequence heading back to whatever planet he came from. Oh, wait. You know what we didn't talk about? We didn't talk about the prelude. They're really proud of their soundtrack composer, even though they frankly shouldn't be, because this is coming from a soundtrack aficionado. The soundtrack isn't special at all. They had an entire prelude that's just a close-up of the two hands from a creation of Adam with the music of the background. We were like, oh god, we have to sit through this. But the first thing I blurred out when watching it was, hey Adam, pull my finger. Which led to a good couple of minutes of amusement when we were just observing the fact. Uh, but that- also there's a, cra- a crack in God's arm. Yeah. Like, Don't pull too hard, you'll pull my <laughs> arm off. Don't pull too hard out. You see, this led to my personal theory that he was banished from the Garden of Eden, not for the snake, but for pulling off God's arm and refusing to give it back. (laughs) I got your arm, God! What can you do to me now? (laughs) Gorvidal said he wrote it so that there was a kind of homosexual backstory to the relationship between Masala and Ben-Hur that he told Stephen Boyd, who played Masala, he was told to play it like they had had a former relationship. And this is why you end up with this heavy vindictiveness going on there. And that they didn't tell Charlton Heston because they thought it would just make him fall apart. This was never confirmed by the director. I don't remember what Boyd had to say about it. Was this really going on there or not? I think probably the best support that you have for the story is the fact that they left out the Iris story. In the 1925 version and in the book, Masala's love interest was Iris. She was completely left out in this, 
and instead you have Masala. He's paired with another guy who takes uh, Iris's place in a way. He doesn't have any interaction with Ben Hur. He takes Iris's place as far as he's in Masala's home. He takes Iris's place in that during the chariot race, he is the one that leaps up when Masala has the accident. And he dies. And this one he died, but not right then. Yeah. He takes Iris's place. And so obviously they have a relationship in the film. And so I think that is probably the best support as far as in the film itself goes to the backstory of a relationship between Masala and Ben-Hur, which really offended Charlton Heston. <laughs> When Gore Vidal came out with all of this, he, he insisted that, that that was not there. It never happened. It did add like an, a very kind of sophomoric level of unintentional humor, though, where essentially the whole idea of the Romans being totally not gay, including the fact that they would have chest plate armor with nipples oh, sticking the, out. Oh, the nipple rings. <laughs> yes, yes like, it's the guy total with the like, rings on his um, chest armor. You would have these Romans going around who are... With this very intense homosexual undertone going on, mm -hmm. and they have nipples protruding from their suits, from their from their armor. Well, well no, this one was interesting because it did look like literal literal nipple rings. I'm interested in the way that the plot was changed. Totally left out Iris. She does not go and try to find out who Ben-Hur was. They left out the whole army thing. There is no army. When he wins... The laurel from the chariot race, he's told, you are their god for the day. Enjoy it. A comparison to Christ is being made there. He's god for the day. The kind of material god. He talks about the idea of bringing up an army, but then they bring up like this very ham-fisted line where it's like, you're being just like Miss Allah or whatever, you know? Talks about it in the 59 version about how he wants to raise up an army and all this and about how he wants to kill him. I think it was like I don't the, remember that. Yeah, and I think it was like the slave's daughter who was like, "You've become just like Masala." Okay, it was just a brief mention. He doesn't. Yeah, that's actually, what I mean. He doesn't actually do that. No, yeah. no. What I mean is like he's talking about yeah. it. Most of the ideas feel like sort of ham-fisted in, but they're bloated to a comical degree. Like every scene is stretched up much longer than it has to be. It's a four-hour-long film, and you can feel it. It oh, feels like listen, a day at, job. After 15 minutes, you're checking the time. Yes. You, fit, you check the time, and you go, it's it's actually, it's just a little short of four hours. It's, it's like, actually, it's 200, it's three hours and 42 minutes. Yeah, it's close and, enough. And so you're just, after 15 minutes, you're already checking the time. You go 15 minutes, you go, oh my goodness, I've got another three and a half hours to go. That is until the God UFO comes in, and then you just sort of, laugh for like 10 minutes straight after seeing that because that's like well the few moments of genuine relief and humor in the film oh oh the, the spikes that they put on the side of the wheels the greek wheels that they had on masala's chariot which is also which, just complete caligula territory well, yeah, it was. Just the they didn't need it i don't know why they put the spikes on the wheels they had masala in this one he comes up and he's got black horses and he's dressed in black and he's riding a red chariot He's, he's emo. <laughs> um, he's got these spikes on the wheels that can tear up everything that they touch. They're the razors. I think they got Romans mixed with the goths. I don't know why they did that because it's just ridiculous. Did have some war chariots that had scythes on the side. Scythes. Um, scythes? Yes. Scythes, not scythes. 
Bear, now I can correct you. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Bear, I finally, fair play. Uh, Bear, I finally, you know. I know, but I for some reason I always say skies. I know it's sides, but I always say skies. It's like that C there. It stands out in my brain, and it goes, pronounce me. I must be honored. In regards to, like, bloating out details, there are also just elements that they threw in where you can clearly tell it's, like, one of the writers thinking of you are, like, so clever, but it's just stupid. In both versions of the film, when Ben-Hur is being taken to the ship, they stop by this little house where a woodcutter lives, and the people are being taken by foot. They haven't drunk anything for, like, weeks, and Ben-Hur is Well, like, that's impossible that they haven't drunk anything for weeks. Whatever, how, how long it's been, however long it's been, and Jesus comes up to Ben-Hur with a gourd of water. Yes, oh, yeah, it's, it's, a a bowl. Bowl. it's a bowl on a, <laughs> it's a bowl on a stick. It happens in both versions, but... In the 50s version, so during the scene where you have the crucifixion of Christ, Ben-Hur is watching the thing, and the first thing he thinks is, Oh, I know what to do here! And so he takes, like, some random bowl nearby and pours it in a thing, and he walks up to Jesus, which, how on earth that would ever happen when you have, like, all the Romans around him, like, keeping everyone back, you know? Jesus falls for, like, a couple of seconds. Jesus, instead of looking at the thing, just looks Ben-Hur directly in the face, and you have, like... The music come in, and then, you know, the Romans kick him back, and it's all just ridiculous. One thing I was kind of disappointed they cut out was the last minute redemptions, which was merely one of the goofier moments of the 20s version, where he had Christ going through, and he essentially, as part of his civil duty, I guess, he gave last minute redemptions to anyone who was present at his cross-carrying. So it's sort of like, you know, last minute revelations, that's what I called it. Uh, you know how film festivals have late deadlines? Mm-hmm. Last minute revelations. So. <laughs> yeah, all right. Anyway, 1925, they just showed like a part of an arm or something like that. Yeah. And this one, you keep seeing all of Jesus, his back, but it's always his back. And it's, it's, it's really annoying. And I don't know why they pulled in an opera singer to play Jesus. Wait, they, they did that? Yes. It was, <laughs> it was a guy by the name of Claude Heater. And he was an opera singer. And, he, and you never see hear him speak, of course. You have the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody's watching him enraptured. But, of course, there are no words. But everybody's enraptured. I think he's he's communicating telepathically, I guess. In that case, they should have, like, during his crucifixion, they should have had him uh, sing the one song from Monty Python, The Life of Brian, the bright side of life thing, while he's on the cross. <laughs> Actually, uh, one other thing about the um, 50s version... They replaced the last-minute revelation with this whole storm that comes in, where essentially, during the storm, everyone is healed and all that. Well, it's not your typical storm. You know what that's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, it's supposed to be the holy storm, or whatever. The, the holy storm, the darkening, and, you the, know, darkening. and the dark, a gloom fell, and things went dark, and whatever. the earthquake, and... Yeah. Which reminds me, there's a wonderful scene in the 1925 one with the earthquake. It's startling. You watch it and you go, oh my, how yeah. did they do that? Okay, go on. What had me disappointed with the 50s one was, so you had the God UFO at the opening. Yeah, they which missed, was amazing. They missed an opportunity with the 50s version where when Jesus was crucified and the darkening happens, mm-hmm. they should have had the God UFO come back and abduct him with the cross intact like return him to his home planet where you just see like the god ufo fly over fly over the field of the crosses and 
the beam of light comes down and the cross flies up in the air. <laughs> which which, and, let, which lets me know that we have kind of come to the end of our discussion no, 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 on no. this. Let me, let me continue this. I mean, they already had that one goofy shot in the 50s version where you have the lightning striking behind the cross and it looked like something from like a 1960s B-horror film. It looked like something from a Hammer film oh, production. Oh, thing. Right. I remember that shot. If they went to that degree, they may as well that, have Jesus looks, be an alien. It looks straight Hammer film. Invasion of the Space Christ in that case. Like, that would have redeemed the film for me. Like, if it was like this four-hour snooze fest and then built up to the planet of Jesus's. Like, it's like the bizarre, absurdist com- comedy equivalent to how Carrie worked, where most of Carrie is like this goofy teen drama and then the last several minutes are just constant emotional trauma. But you know what I mean? And uh, I'm basically making uh. my film pitch. If anyone wants to produce with me Invasion of the Space Christ... Which I know is technically already a film with the... What was it? Invasion of the Space Preachers? Well, it's not the same thing, but Invasion of the Space Preachers by Daniel Boyd. Yeah. It is an open letter to anyone. If anyone listening wants to produce with me Invasion of the Space Christ, bug off because I'm making that film. <laughs> That's my movie. No one else is taking it from me. We began with talking about Timothy Carey, and we shall end with talking about Timothy Carey. It's funny to me, 1959, so you've got Christ on the cross, you see him from the back. This is not a typical thing that happens, I don't think, in a crucifixion scene with the film. You've got a, the river of blood, the blood from his hands, blood from his feet, where it goes down and it forms a river of blood flowing from the cross, right? And it's like, what? Because in 19... 19- 62. Well, technically, the production was between 1958 and 1962. Yeah. Timothy Carey's The World's Greatest Sinner. What happens at the end? You've got God Hilliard. He stabs the Eucharist. He's in his bedroom, and he has a communion wafer, a Eucharist with him, and a, I think, like a sewing needle or something. And he says if it, that if it doesn't bleed when he stabs it, that he accepts that everything is his own human weakness. So he stabs the Eucharist, just falls apart, Wanders off laughing, but some implied time later... You have no, this, very soon thereafter, uh, so, so you get the idea. He goes out to meet with his with his followers in a building behind the house, and then you've got the River of Blood. You have this long crossing trail of blood. Like, there's one line that goes from yeah, the building to his house, and then another one that goes from side to side, so it and forms he, a cross. And he goes running back up following the blood... And goes running back up to the bedroom, and he's zapped by light as he enters the bedroom. Then the film ends with the Eucharist, with the crucifixion image on the Eucharist, you know, yeah. uh, and with the points where it has been stabbed. And I thought that was so funny that, in especially when you consider the spectacle idea, the spectacle of Ben Hur ends with this river of blood. And then you've got the world's greatest sinner ending with the river of blood ex- coming from the Eucharist that has been stabbed. I think it, it could definitely be like uh, Tim's own riffing on how Ben-Hur ended because with how he was talking about how he was sick of how Hollywood films would brand themselves as being like the ultimate spectacle. Yeah. That could be like his own sort of like riffing on like the whole the finale of Ben-Hur kind of, like right. the ending of Ben-Hur. Version and Sinner, I like that one way better. Even if he wasn't a surrealist, the way he handled it 
in that film felt like something from an Antonin Artaud play. It oh, was come just, on, he's a surrealist. He was an unintentional surrealist. Even if it was like completely accidental, he was all there mm-hmm. with that sort of ideology. It was just really just out there. Okay, now, so we have covered here three movies. Ben-Hur's. 1907, 1925, 1959. Do you think we might have convinced anybody to go and watch, watch the 1925, 1925 version? Watch the 1925 one, and if you want like a movie to riff it, on with your drinking buddies, watch the 1907 one because the the 1959 one, that thing will suck out your soul. That was one thing I remember hearing about in regards to Bollywood films about how Except they. Except this was a November film. It must and, have been and I, one like hot I said, November. People were holidaying Thanksgiving with their families, and it's like, okay, how can we get out of here and go to the <laughs> theater for four hours to get away from everybody? And and lesson, nineteen twenty five. Watch the nineteen twenty five version. Nineteen oh seven is good for like a riffing movie. Nineteen fifty nine. That thing will turn your brain into pulp. It is. Boring. Next week, we'll watch Ben Hur 2016 and try to count every time an actor lost hope in their career while acting in the film. Say goodbye, Aaron. Goodbye, Aaron. So today, we talked about Ben Hur, Ben Hur, Ben Hur, Ben Him, Ben Hur, Ben Hur, Ben Hur, Ben Him, Ben Hur, Ben Hur. Ben him. That's all the time that we have for this week. We will be back next week. And we hope you have a good one. We hope we have a good one, too.